0: You're listening to The Reopening, a podcast that asks, how will America work through the COVID-19 pandemic, how will we innovate, and how will it change our global economy? Each week, we invite top business leaders to share their
1: insights on the road to economic revival here at home and around the world. Today, our guest is William Riley. Bill served four American presidents in various roles, including Environmental Protection Agency Administrator. Bill was president of the Conservation Foundation for 15 years, and then a senior advisor to TGP Capital an International Investment Partnership. We'll talk with Bill about the evolution of cities, about new approaches to work, and how what we learned from the pandemic will shape our approach to the future. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Scott Miller. And this is The Reopening. Bill Riley, it's a great pleasure to talk with you. You're the closest thing to a Renaissance man that we'll ever have on this program, but we, we really admire the range of your activities over the years and your wisdom on a variety of subjects. You've been observing how working from home has changed and the attitudes of organizations and what implications that might have. That might be a great place to start our conversation.
2: Well, I started life as a land use lawyer. I'm very interested in the organization of cities and space And design and so forth. And one of the extraordinary consequences of so many people working at home is that, first of all, the people themselves have grown rather to like, according to most polling data, the possibility of just getting up in the morning and continuing to work in their pajamas or whatever and doing the same job they would have done with all of the connections we have today because of technology. And um, that has it's a largely satisfied community as far as I'm aware. The big surprise is that CEOs who have always been wary of people working unsupervised at home and unorganized other than on the internet, have come to like it. They have come to believe that first of all, efficiency has not fallen off, productivity is holding up, and to their own astonishment, and this is attested to by the head of Accenture and FedEx and a number of other companies, CEOs are coming to think that this could presage a change in how they organize office space, how they will very likely require significantly less, how commuting patterns will change, possibly the automobile will be less, there will be fewer two-car families, possibly. The kinds of things that we have come to take for granted, and in some places in the world, like Paris, Anne Hidalgo, the mayor there, has taken this message and quite significantly increase the space that is allocated to both pedestrians, the width of sidewalks, but also to bicycles. I think we're going to have to look at office space and real estate as something that uh, may well undergo a profound change in demand.
1: Well, that makes sense. Uh, Clearly, my commute has gone from 30 minutes to 30 seconds, which I find pretty efficient. But you're right, we're seeing fewer cars on the road, uh, now, clearly, that has implications for real estate in both retail and commercial. Obviously, online sales are way up, retail's way down. So you have, a, you have a real estate problem with bricks and mortar retail. You're foreshadowing one for commercial real estate. How does this play out, do you think?
2: Well, another implication is potentially for the automobile. We, who have worked on climate change for some years, have been disappointed that electrification of automobiles has been so slow. Something like 3 to 4% of cars manufactured last year were powered by electricity. If demand responds to the drop in commuting needs, there's a real question, what will take up the slack? Will people be working in much greater numbers at home? I suspect they will. But also, what's the consequence for mass transit, for public transportation? 400,000 people a day use it in New York. The CDC has recommended against using it in the context of the current coronavirus threat that's out there. And if I were in the auto industry, I'd be quite concerned to see how that will play out. Now, there is an odd tension underway in the country. Mm -hmm. The culture of states and localities is, as far as I can read, quite friendly to things like renewable energy, these renewable portfolio standards that more than 35 states now have, that require some proportion of electrical energy to be wind or solar. On the other hand, The federal government is moving in the opposite direction. They have just issued regulations that essentially remove environmental considerations from infrastructure investment decisions. Well, that's quite consequential too. How much influence they can have to uh, change the local planning response to current needs and demands of constituents remains to be seen. They can certainly have some influence on it, and they have blocked offshore wind, for example, successfully on the East Coast.
1: That's a classic federal state tension that uh, always be embedded.
2: You know, a number of countries have had a debate that we appear not to have had in any significant degree as to whether or not the very large amount of compensation of people for their lost in wages and income and businesses too, whether that would be accompanied by some requirements to become more sustainable. For example, the French, have bailed out Air France, but they did it at a price. They exacted from Air France commitment on new routes, on allowing high-speed rail to take over some international movement of people. And uh, Germany has had that debate, they're having it still. It looks like it's going the other way in the sense that the Germans are not getting out of coal any faster than they had previously intended by 2038. We didn't really have the debate. Our bailout for the airlines came without strings. Nevertheless, I think the airline industry also has to be aware that there is likely to be a moral dimension to travel, to unnecessary travel, to meetings, to uh, conferences, to certainly even to board meetings. All of the board meetings I have had have surprised me in that they have been pretty efficient. They've allowed everyone to have a say. They're not as uh, easy, as congenial and perhaps one regulates oneself so as not to dominate too much, recognizing that it's gotta be spread around. But if you already know the people you're on the board with, a Zoom meeting works quite well.
0: Well, Bill, this is Andrew. You mentioned Accenture and Julie Sweet at the beginning of your remarks. You know, Accenture has more than 500,000 employees worldwide. And before the pandemic, no more than 10% of them worked remotely on any given day by the middle of March, nearly all of them were home. And their chief technical officer just told the New York Times that the volume of video calls went up sixfold. The audio calls tripled to 900 million minutes. And to put that in context, he said that's over 1,700 years of continuous audio. So we're really in for a major sea change here with this work from home. Do you think it's going to inspire the kind of innovation in other spaces that, you know, like in the environmental community, what kind of innovation is there going to be as a result of work from home? Well,
2: I think if you are part of an NGO, a non-governmental organization in the environmental world, the moral suasion to avoid what would it be? What is this deemed unnecessary travel is going to be enormous. There is a moral dimension now to some of these issues that there didn't used to be. There's a moral dimension with respect to oil and gas accumulation of reserves. When the Pope spoke to the CEOs of all of the major oil companies in the Vatican, he drew attention to the fact that most of the reserves that are already in stock, identified and and owned, can never be burned, consistent with meeting our Paris objectives of keeping the temperature at two degrees or less. Well, the market has not yet begun to respond to that, but I certainly know some CEOs of the oil industry who are very sensitive to it. And they're between a rock and a hard place in the sense that analysts rate companies, their values of shares, according to their accumulation of reserves each year. But if you can't burn them, where's that going? And when will the market begin to agree with the Pope and consider that, uh, well, if we really believe in Paris, we've got to rein in this accumulation.
0: You mentioned mass transit. So less people are gonna be taking mass transit because of fear of coronavirus in the short term. But do you see a return to mass transit, you know, where everybody's talking about how clean the subway in New York is through ultraviolet, through deep cleaning, similar mass transit systems in other cities. Do you think that that's gonna cut it or does there need to be something else that happens?
2: Well, if there is a significant reduction in commuters, that's going to affect mass transit to their revenues and their stability financially. I myself believe that the efficiencies of mass transit, especially in large dense environments like New York City and San Francisco and, and other such places will give them a robust demand that they continue to respond to. The pressure to improve the safety the cleanliness, the pleasure in in traveling, all of that to the degree that mass transit responds to it, I think will will give them another lease on life. So I don't worry about the fact that if there are 400,000 people a day who have traditionally used mass transit in the New York area, which there are, I don't know where those numbers will go, but it's still going to be a very big city with a lot of reason to move around and there's a role for mass transit there
1: you mentioned the new higher standards and uh, everyone we've talked to on this program who talks about travel, tourism, so hotel space, airlines, wherever they are, they all seem to appreciate the fact that consumer has raised the table stakes for cleanliness and hygiene, that the, there's a base expectation that is higher now than it was before this. Uh, what do you think the implications of that might be?
2: Well, I think that We have all become so sensitive to cleanliness and to sanitation and things of that sort. And I see nothing but good from that. I have been associated as a board member of the second largest cruise line in the world, Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. And the kind of testing that we are hoping to have will be much faster than the traditional testing, which has taken a couple of days to get a report back. But also we'll test for things like norovirus, So that the possibility is that if you're on a cruise, far from being on a hospital ship, you will be in the safest environment that could be designed because everybody will have been tested as part of their their embarkation. I think there's going to be a debate and it will take place largely at the local level about if I'm correct, that there will be less demand for office space. There may also be less demand for hotels, for travel that could go with that with the discouragement of travel. We have in San Francisco, a severe homeless problem. The homeless have been accommodated in hotels which essentially are rented by the city and the homeless are, are very happy. that one report the other day of a woman with her 14 year old son had never, had never lived so well, had a bathroom nearby, things of that sort. And that's quite satisfying to the hotel operators because otherwise they'd be empty.
1: They had no customers, it's-
2: right? <laughs> And then you've got the reallocation of office space. We have this shortage of housing in California, which is the reason, really, for our homelessness problem. Well, what about adapting some of those buildings to habitation, to to housing, Mm -hmm. to apartments? That's a possibility. And it's, it's a very exciting possibility of reconsidering the organization of space, the use, the allocation for the automobile Our cities could be different places. They could be greener and more congenial, quieter, and I think more pleasant and more just, really, when you think about taking taking care, possibly, of the the homeless.
0: And do you think people will be moving further out because they're able to telework?
2: Well, if I'm right that we're going to have a reallocation of space within the cities, I think a lot of people might see the cost of housing come down somewhat if there's Mm -hmm. an increase in supply in the cities. Cities are a great place to live. I mean, I've lived in them all my life and there are just so many conveniences, so many opportunities. Serendipity is an encouragement to so much creativity, and invention, innovation. And face-to-face meetings are never going to lose their capacity to change people and to contribute to their, to their lives. But I do believe that if you are no longer going into the office five days, maybe you're going in on one day all of a sudden, you can look at a farther out destination and think, well, I'll drive two hours if it's just to come in on Friday or Thursday. So, yes, I think it could lead to the possibility that people who want to reduce their housing costs, maybe improve the schools that their kids use, go farther out into the suburbs and the exurbs.
0: Now, I got to ask you about cruise lines because you're something of an expert on cruise lines. As You just mentioned you're, you're associated with Royal Caribbean. The conventional wisdom that I keep hearing is nobody's ever going to go on a cruise again because they're nervous about getting sick. And then there's people who are concerned about the environmental impacts of cruises and so on and so forth. What's the reality of the cruise situation right now as you see it?
2: It's very interesting that the would-be passengers are booking trips for next spring. Right now, at quite large numbers. Right now? Right now. There was a sense that uh, when all of this began and there was so much publicity of the ship in Japan and so forth, that it might be a different business when it opens up again, and it may be in some respects. They, they may favor shorter cruises, cruises to places where they can have a controlled environment in a resort-like setting. But the Royal Caribbean offered to refund everybody's money who had paid for travel that they weren't going to get, cruises that were now canceled, or to give them 25% premium toward the purchase of a new cruise. And we expected that there'd be something like a quarter of the people who might take us up on the offer of the premium. It turned out about 70% did. So 70%. Was, yes, it was a good measure of the continuing confidence of the traveling public, the cruise taking public in the uh, survival of the enterprise and the, the appeal of the enterprise. So I wouldn't be so sure that the business is going to be as impaired as, as originally many of us had felt.
1: That is just amazing. I mean, now I'm not a cruise maven myself, but I had expected cruisers to be the last to recover uh, just because of the conditions going in. But this is actually quite encouraging.
2: Well, there are people who say never again. That's, yes. that's true. But this statistic is very encouraging to the future of the business.
1: Bill, if I could ask you about the sort of the developing world and their experience coming out of the pandemic. I've been, been curious because you look at the whole world and... We all know that improvements to the environment are are demanded. The the wealthier your society, the more demand there is and the more expectation there is for a cleaner environment. And one of the concerns is that the developing countries are being hit hard and will wind up in deeper poverty than they were in before. And uh, poverty is very bad for the environment, or has been over time, uh, in terms of the use of resources. What's your view of this? How do you see the recovery outside the industrial economies?
2: I want to be careful not to be too critical of some of the developing countries. As Lord knows, the United States did not manage this well in terms of adequacy of testing, contact tracing, and um, responses. But if you look at places like Mexico and Brazil, particularly they didn't have any kind of transparency in the numbers. They really suppressed the information of how extensive, and they are doing it today, as far as I understand. Their hospitals have not geared up to manage the problem. And um, I think their people will suffer longer and harder than most others. India is a particularly egregious case where um, everybody was shut in for a period, a very strict lockdown kind of approach, and it had very important consequences for economics and for suffering of people. I think it's going to be an even longer time for those cultures, those countries to overcome, to flatten the curve, mm-hmm. to uh, deal with their problem, improve their public health system. And that's really what, what it comes down to. We learned with the Ebola crisis that the, the African countries, which had robust public health systems, came through it very well. They really did and turned the corner on it and managed it and kept it from growing out of control. That was not true in the countries which had not paid much attention to their public health. So I think at a minimum, we're going to see and I hope the United States and the developed world will help countries improve those systems and uh, begin to take the measures that really should have been taken before now, but now have a priority they've never had.
0: Do you think conservation is going to change in the United States? Do you think um, the energy business in the United States is going to change? And if so, how do you see it changing?
2: The energy business is going to have to change over time. And I think it already is. I have a farm in Illinois and I've been contacted by a solar company who wants to take 20 or 30 acres for a solar array. And the reason for that is Illinois has a requirement that 20% or more of of electrical energy in the state be supplied by wind and solar. Well, 35 or more states have those rules. So you're going to continue to see an evolution toward renewables together with the fact that very unlike most of the time I've been advocating for this, the renewables are now competitive. They're competitive even with natural gas. And that's a fundamental change in the market. And it's been the market that has driven out coal. It's not been so much the environmentalist that, uh, that coal just couldn't compete with natural gas, which is less expensive, cleaner, more desirable in many ways. I think you'll continue to see renewables take more of the market. The administration has made very clear that there's a second term for President Trump. They will work against more renewables and try to protect coal and, and fossil fuels. But I'm not sure that uh, they haven't had much luck in the first term, at least with encouraging coal against the market. And uh, I think that probably will be true in the second term as well. We also have to look to the source of about a third of our greenhouse gases, CO2, which are automobiles, and hope that the industry begins to increase the manufacture of electric vehicles and that the utility industry begins to build the charging stations necessary to support that economy. Now that'll be a slower transition because it takes uh, quite a while, 11 to 13 years or so for the car fleet to completely turn over but I believe, I hope that that happens.
0: do you see less people driving?
2: Well, certainly if you look at the commuter patterns uh, in the major driving times in the morning and all of the periods when we have the fast lanes in California, New York, Illinois, everywhere, where the big cities are, I think there'll be a significant reduction in the number of people who have to do that to get to office space to do their jobs. So the answer is I do believe there'll be less driving. I don't know that it will affect personal travel, leisure travel. I think it's a big country. It's a very interesting country. There's so many parts of it that we all want to see. The national parks are a huge draw. I think that the leisure market will continue. It might be a more commonly served market by automobiles than by airplanes. I know uh, my daughter is about to come visit us, stay with us for a while with her three children and her husband and they're going to drive from New York to California. Wow. Now that's
0: that's Talk avoid, about on the road.
2: <laughs> that's to avoid flying. They've read the stories that the airlines are not enforcing the masks and the other kinds of spacing rules, and it's high, And how could they? They're, they're so much confined space. I don't know how long that will last. I don't think it'll last forever, but in the near term, I suspect it will diminish air travel.
1: I think you're right. At least this summer, what I'm reading is, First of all, there's a big boost in RV sales. So recreational vehicles are quite popular again, mostly because of the love of travel, but low fuel prices sells a lot of RVs. The low demand has created low fuel prices. So I think this summer is probably the summer of the road trip, but a year or two from now, we'll be at a new normal.
2: Funny you mentioned that. The way my daughter is getting to California, they've rented an RV. It was very difficult to find one. They found one in Chicago. They're driving from Brooklyn to Chicago in a big van, which they're renting, and then they will take the RV and come the rest of the
0: way to California.
1: It's not called the family truckster by any chance, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Because there was a movie about about this trip.
0: Vacation, (laughs) Chevy Chase. (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, one final question I want to ask you, and we've been sort of dancing around this, is that a lot of people think that The coronavirus, you know, has helped the Earth cool down because we're not flying as much, we're not traveling as much, we're not driving as much, emissions seem to be down. Do you think that that's going to give us momentum for a cleaner Earth going forward and governments paying more attention, going back to the Paris Accords, the United States looking at this more thoroughly in terms of really cleaning up our own environment?
2: I very much hope that it will. You know, I recall the stories of Germany after World War II, considering whether it would remake its cities, whether it would take advantage of the fact that they had basically been leveled, to uh, reimagine them. After some considerable reflection on that, they chose not to. The reason they didn't was all of the underground infrastructure was in place, the sanitation, the water, a lot of the electrical conduits. The question is whether we want to reimagine our cities now. We can do it. We know that the emissions have gone down very considerably. I think it's something like 8%. We also know that mainstream science says that they have to go down about 7% per year for 10 years in order to have any chance of meeting the Paris commitments. Well, we could engage in a much more intense conversation, ideally led by the president, in how we can continue to keep the emissions down. We know that the automobile fleet can be a major contributor to that, uh, the automobile industry. We know that the electricity industry can, that we can preserve the role that uh, carbon-free power, particularly nuclear, uh, which is being phased out in so many places, has contributed. There's a debate that we ought to have about the practical choices available to us that will not really be severe inconveniences to people's lives. And that's the thing that is interesting here. If we had told everybody that they had to stay home for three out of four weeks, say, as a compulsion, wouldn't have gone over very well. But in response to this disease and then the established reality that has worked pretty well, that part of it, you know, I think people might be disposed. To rethink, to rethink cities, rethink the allocation to the automobile in cities, rethink the office space situation, whether some conversion to housing is in order and would be economically uh, viable. Those things really deserve consideration, and I, and I hope very much that they get it.
1: You know, that's such a positive view of what we're able to learn from crisis that applies to all of our lives and helps us make a better future. Thank you for giving us that perspective today. We've A bit of delight to talk to you. We hope you'll come back on the program again.
0: Thank you. It's a great pleasure
2: talking to you.
1: Thanks so much, Bill. We really appreciate
0: it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to The Reopening. If you like this episode, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find other podcasts from the Center for Strategic and International Studies at csis.org slash podcasts.